great to sing praises with you all today. And these are songs of praise. These are joyful songs, songs of gladness. We get to sing out and say, our sin is gone. And not just until next year when you make the next sacrifice, like it was in Judaism, right? But our sin is gone forever. As far as the east is from the west, our sin is gone in Christ. And we can sing songs of gladness. They move us to tears, but these are smiling songs, aren't they? They're songs where we can be so full of joy and thankfulness because of what He has done on our behalf. Well, uh, please turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. We will get there uh, in a few moments. I know you might need some extra time to find Zephaniah, so (laughs) uh, go ahead and start looking for it. There were some uh, directories that we handed out today, some updated uh, directories that we started handing out today. If you need one, uh, let me know. Trying to get those to all of those who shared their directory info with us. And there is one correction. Stan's address should say 500, not 5,600, right? So while we all have, uh, or many of us have our directories, you can make that correction now before you forget. It should say 500, not 5,600. And then tonight, too, I want to let you know, remind you, for those interested in church membership, we have our second church membership class tonight via Zoom. If you need uh, the link for that, just let me know and I can get that to your email. But that second class is happening tonight. We had a great first uh, session and look forward to the discussion tonight too. Well, Zephaniah 3 is where we're going to uh, start today. But before uh, we get into that, how about I open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can sing together in unison and in great unity that we stand redeemed. It is because of what you have done in our behalf, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, bringing grace and truth, living a perfect life and dying the death we deserved in our stead on the cross and rising again and ascending into heaven. It is because of this work of yours that we can say that we stand redeemed. We agree together that we don't trust in ourselves. As we sang this morning, This salvation is by grace and not by merit. It's by blood and by grace, not by any merit or work of our own. God, we ask that today as we look into your word that you would help us to understand more of your grand story. You are the creator of all things and you are weaving time together, building your story to bring glory to yourself. Help us to understand what it is that you've revealed to us that we would uh, understand the words of Scripture, that you would anoint me to preach, that though I am a sinner, that I wouldn't get in the way, but that you would use me to deliver your word to your people, that the message would be clear. God, help us to understand and to grow more, to be more like Jesus. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Joshua, as you know. Um, We've been covering that book uh, for a while there. It was verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Uh, Lately, it's been chapter by chapter. (laughs) Uh, And we've reached a point in the book of Joshua where the Israelites, who God has redeemed out of Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, 
they've come into this promised land, and there's just a lot of time spent on this land, this particular plot of land that God has given them. They have to divide it up among the 12 tribes, and by doing that, they have to get rid of the people who are there. They have to move them out of the land and take possession of that land for themselves. And there's a lot of detail that goes into that in the book of Joshua that we've been covering. And my assignment today is to cover four chapters from the book of Joshua, chapters 18 through 21. Uh, we're going to give a high-level view of those. But before we, we get into Joshua, I want to string together a few passages outside of Joshua that speak to this land. Because of all the time that Joshua spends in his book describing what goes on in the land, you may just start to wonder, well, what is the deal with this land anyway? Why are they taking so much time in this land? Why is there so much painstaking detail about the land? Because we're so far removed from that. We're not conquering a land. We're not dividing it up into 12 tribes, are we? It just seems so foreign and far off. Well, the land actually has a very special purpose in God's redemptive program. That's the big idea that I want you to see first thing this morning. This land that God has given to Israel has a very special place in God's redemptive program. That's why it, it comes up so much in Joshua and throughout the Old Testament. It has a special place. It's a special piece of land because God has set it apart for His purposes. And so, we do well today to take a step back and see God's redemptive purposes. And we could start in Genesis 12, of course. Uh, I haven't asked you to turn there. But uh, in Genesis 12 is where we really hear about this land for the first time. God plucked Abram out of his pagan ways. And he made a covenant, an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And part of that covenant was a piece of land. There was the promise of blessing to all the worlds through his, his descendants. There was the promise that he was going to have lots of descendants. And there was the promise of this land that would belong to his descendants forever. And you see that in Genesis 12 and chapter 13. Well, it comes up so much in the book of Joshua because his descendants for the first time are entering into this land. Abraham's descendants for the first time are taking possession of this land that was promised to Abraham so long ago. And in the book of Zephaniah, we see what God is doing. Now, Zephaniah is, is pretty disconnected from Joshua in the sense that it wasn't written at the same time or in the same circumstances, but it was written to and about the same people as the book of Joshua, to Israelites and about Israelites. And of course, it's for us today as God has preserved it for our benefit as well. And as with many of the prophets in the book of Zephaniah, he starts off making so many judgments against Israel and other nations, but particularly Israel, because isn't it just amazing in Israel's history, so much that God is doing for them, and so quickly they turn to idolatry. So quickly they turn away from this God who's given them land, who's given them covenants, He's given them so many promises, and they turn away and they serve dead idols. What is that about? I would submit to you that's something in the human heart, isn't it? And you see that through Israel's history, this depravity of the flesh that just comes out over and over and over again, where they turn away from the God who blesses them. Well, at the end of Zephaniah's book here, it's just a short three-chapter book, at the end, starting in verse 12, he turns from judgment to hope. It actually starts back in verse 8, but we're going to start in verse 12, where like with many of the prophets, he ends his judgments with a word of hope to Israel. Starting in verse 12, it says, God speaking, of course, 
I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. So after God's fiery trial, His judgments that will come upon Israel because of their idolatry, because of their repenting of repenting, turning away from who they turn to, God is going to judge them, but in His judgment, He's going to leave behind, it says in verse 12, a humble and lowly people who take refuge in the name of Yahweh. Let's keep reading verse 13. It says, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Well, that's an amazing passage, isn't it? What great hope Israel is given here after being told repeatedly they are sinful idolaters. They're deserving of judgment. God's going to judge them. And then look at the end of verse 19. One of these days, their shame is going to be turned into praise and renown in all the earth. They will be, a remnant will be saved. They will be brought in, gathered together. And in verse 20, it says, among all the peoples of the earth. So there will be other nations. And among those other nations, this remnant of Israel will have renown and praise. And at the end of verse 20, this remnant of Israel will see their fortunes restored. So all the ways that their enemies have come into the land and kicked them out and ruined the cities and burned things down, there's coming a day in that land for that people, it will be restored through God's grace. Well, let's turn back toward Joshua, but don't go too far. Let's hit the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, another book that perhaps you need a little extra time to find. Amos chapter 9. In Amos, like with Zephaniah, the bulk of the book leading up to the end is about the judgments that are rightly due to Israel and their oppressors, the other nations. All we like sheep have gone astray. You know that verse in the Bible? Well, you see it in all people, all the nations and even in Israel, they've gone astray and God's judgment would be unavoidable for them. 
God is going to visit Israel. There's going to be a day of Jacob's trouble, and there will be a day when Israel will be harshly judged for their sin, the prophets say. But not only that, there will be a day of restoration, just like we read about in Zephaniah. Start with me in Amos 9.11, Amos chapter 9, verse 11, the last five verses of the book. He too offers them hope after warning of judgment. In Amos 9.11, it says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people, Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. Catch this, verse 15, the very last message of this prophet. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is going to be an amazing time of restoration for Israel, isn't it? It'll be rebuilt. It'll be restored. The cities, the gardens, it'll, they'll be taken back from their captivity. And of course, there were times where they were taken captive and brought back. The Babylonian captivity, of course, may be on the top of some of your minds, where they were taken into exile through the Babylonian kingdom. But when they came back from that captivity, you didn't see this, did you? <laughs> you didn't see this kind of restoration where they would come back and the mountains would drip with sweet wine and they would be planted in their land, again, verse 15, permanently, never to be rooted out of their land again. A permanent restoration, a mass migration back to the land. And it's again among the nations where they will be planted, dwell in safety, and enjoy the salvation of God in Christ forevermore. Last week, uh, Tyler mentioned Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48. We won't stop and read Ezekiel, but on your way back to Joshua, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is another key passage to read about. And it talks about a new temple that's going to be built. He gives very specific measurements for this humongous temple that's going to be built in Israel that hasn't been built yet. And when you get to the end, the last chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 48, you see them back in the land, and they're redividing the land. They're making boundaries again for the 12 tribes, and that happens in the book of Ezekiel. But I want us to go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, and look at just two verses, Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8, where again we see what God is going to do with this land in the future. This land wasn't just for Joshua's day. This land has a major redemptive purpose in God's program that He's going to use in a major way in the future. Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Again, this phrase comes up, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, 
then they will live on their own soil. So again, there's a mass migration back to this land, this land that was promised to Abram and to all his descendants forever. God is going to bring them back on that soil. You see that word there in verse 8? He's bringing them back and planting them in their own soil. And I love verse 7. It says, this is going to be so astounding. What God is doing in Israel at this future time is going to be so astounding that no longer will people say, he's the God who delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea. Instead, they're going to start saying, he's the God who brought them back in this major restoration from all the nations where they were scattered. This is going to be such an amazing act of God, it's going to overshadow the exodus from Egypt. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that astounding that God would do such an amazing work? If you were to turn to the book of Jeremiah chapter 33, we won't go there today, but in Jeremiah 33, just that chapter alone, four times it says God is going to restore. He's going to restore the nation. He's going to restore the land. And in, again, in Ezekiel, this is chapters 36 and 37, you remember that Ezekiel was told to go get two sticks, and he was to write on one stick the house of Judah and the other the house of Ephraim or the house of Israel. Now, around here, this prophecy of Ezekiel really gets messed up. Uh, don't, don't listen to most of your neighbors who try to explain this to you, okay? But uh, there are these two tribes that are written on two sticks, and Ezekiel's prophecy was to put them together in his one hand and say, they will be one kingdom again, and they will have one king ruling over them. And so the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, are going to come back and be restored together in the land and have one king ruling over them. Another amazing prophecy given by Ezekiel. And then in the New Testament, this is from Acts chapter 3, Peter giving his second sermon in the New Testament is speaking to Jews. And after Christ has started to build his church, Peter goes out proclaiming the gospel, the good news to the Jewish people. And listen to what Peter says. Therefore, repent and return, again, speaking to Israelites, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So, it, so there in his second sermon, and both of those sermons were to Israelites, you have the apostle Peter preaching to Jews, telling them to repent and believe in the gospel. And that as Israel does this, as there's a mass turning to Jesus, times of refreshing are to come a period of restoration spoken of by the holy prophets, some of which we were just looking at, a period of restoration where God is going to bring these Jews back as one, under one king, as they have faith in King Jesus to be restored in that land. You see how the land is fitting into God's purposes here? He's saving people, and He's going to save His nation, Israel, and He's going to plant them on their own soil, the soil He gave to them, in an unconditional covenant. He's going to bring them back. Do you remember just before Peter ascended, or just before Jesus ascended, Peter didn't ascend, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter's final question, after 40 days of being with the risen Savior and learning more about the kingdom of God, Peter asks, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There's our word, restore. And Jesus says, not for you to know the times. 
And so he goes out and he preaches to Jews and he says, turn that the period of restoration may come because he knows it wasn't going to come without a mass salvation in God's nation, Israel. There'll be a spiritual restoration and a physical restoration in that land. And of course, as you read through in the, in the New Testament, you get to the book of Revelation, you see times of judgment coming upon the whole earth, and there's that special 144,000 of the Jews who are saved, 12,000 from 12 tribes, 12,000 each, and a multitude from other nations, all leading up to that messianic kingdom, and that leads up to a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth where we'll dwell forever. So far from not caring about real estate. I, I heard one Bible guy on the radio say that one time, that God doesn't care about real estate. What a crazy thing to say. He created. He created the earth. He cares about every molecule, doesn't he? Every molecule is going to one day be redeemed. Well, far from not caring about real estate, we see the Creator using creation for His purposes. And now as we turn back to Joshua, turn with me to chapter 18, because we see... Here, 3,000 years ago, over 3,000 years ago for us, the first time Israel is entering and taking possession of this land, we see even then that God was using it for His redemptive purposes. He had a redemptive purpose in Joshua's day, and this is very important for us to see. Last week, Tyler covered for us the division of the land for a few people, or a few tribes. If you run your eyes back over the previous chapters, you see the territory for Judah that came after Caleb's special request, the territory of Ephraim, the territory of Manasseh. Well, the rest of the land still needs to be divided for the other tribes during Joshua's time. And I just want us to dwell on verse 1 for a while. Joshua 18, verse 1, after those divisions were made, it says, "...then the whole congregation..." of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Well, the tent of meeting, as you read about it there in verse 1, is the tabernacle. This is where God would come meet with His people. Uh, tabernacle is probably the word you're more familiar with than the phrase tent of meeting. Eventually, Israel had a temple, and the temple replaced the tabernacle. But here they are setting up that, that tabernacle, and there was always just one in Israel. And here we see it was in what city? It was in Shiloh. Shiloh is a, a pretty name. I like that name. Yet this is the first time in the Bible we hear about that city named Shiloh. And it was in the hill country. It comes up in the Old Testament about 30 times, the city of Shiloh. But this is the very first mention right here. It might surprise you to also know that this is the first mention of the tabernacle in the book of Joshua. We've made it 18 chapters without the tent of meeting or the tabernacle being spoken of. This is the first mention. And you might notice too there in verse 1 where the sons of Israel, all Israel, assembled themselves together. It's the first time they were all gathered together since chapter 9. They had been scattered off, dividing up land and doing various things like fighting their enemies. And this is the first time... And they've been brought back together since chapter 9. Well, that tabernacle stayed in Shiloh for 389 years. It was there for a long time, the tabernacle there in Shiloh. After Shiloh, it moved on to Nob and then to Gibeon. And eventually, the temple made its way to Jerusalem. And that's probably what you're most familiar with, is when the temple came along and it was set up in Jerusalem, that was uh, a really big moment in Israel's history, a milestone moment for them. 
But the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the temple, it was very important in Israel, wasn't it? This was a very important place, and and I want us to dwell on this theologically for a moment, because in order to meet with God, they had to go there. That's why it was called the tent of meeting. In order to commune with God, in order to be in the presence of God, they had to go into that tent. They had to go into that tabernacle, because what was inside that, that place, and, and the deepest, uh, the most secure place, especially as the temple was developed and you had the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, didn't you? The Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember from earlier in the book of Joshua, you see the Ark of the Covenant representing the very presence of God. They were going to cross the Jordan River. The Ark of the Covenant went first. There it goes across the river, and God goes before us was the message. God is leading us into this place. And so the the tent of meeting or the tabernacle was very important in Israel to go in and to commune with God and the priests to perform their priestly function. It was centrally located. Shiloh, being in the hill country, was also pretty well centered in the middle of this land that God gave them, and it unified the nation. Well, we don't have a tabernacle today, do we? Uh, In a way, we do, but We don't have one like this. We don't have a tent of meeting. We don't have a temple. We don't rely on a physical location that God has commissioned us to build to go meet with God, do we? But instead, I mean, isn't this fantastic? We're the temple. Together as the church, as we come together, 1 Corinthians 3 says, the Spirit of God, the very presence of God dwells in you. And in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians we learn that your body individually is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't go somewhere to meet God, but God is within us as Christians. When we are born again, when we're washed and regenerated, He comes and makes His abode within us. You remember Jesus talking about that? We will come and make our abode in the believer. And it's just an amazing thing about the church. This is very unique that the church exists as the temple of God. And I'm so thankful we live in this day where we don't have to trek to Shiloh to meet with God. You don't have to leave your seat to meet with God. He's always there, ministering to you and hearing your prayers. Nevertheless, at this time, that wasn't the case. At this time, they had to build the tabernacle, and then they had to finish dividing the land. I want us to read from verse 2 to verse 10 here in Joshua 18. It says in verse 1 that the land was subdued before them, But there's still more work to do. Verse 2, there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them, and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance. Then they shall return to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay in its territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall stay in their territory on the north. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh also have received their inheritance eastward beyond the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose and went, 
And Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land, saying, Go, walk through the land and describe it, and return to me. Then I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities and seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them at Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. So Joshua sent out 21 assessors, so to speak. They were sent out to assess the land, to make those divisions, to recognize them, and to give descriptions of the cities, to make fair boundaries. And Joshua cast lots before the Lord in Shiloh. At that tabernacle, at the tent of meeting, the way that this was decided was by casting lots. And that's kind of a funny thing to us, isn't it? Uh, the word that we have for lottery, it's tied to that word for lot, casting lots. And so it's just kind of interesting when you think about this was how they made the decision. Well, this was simply just the means that God used then. They were led and directed to use this means. He wasn't speaking to them saying this is exactly how it should happen. The Spirit wasn't guiding them in the way that He does today. But they were to cast those lots recognizing that it was the Lord making the decision. When we hear casting lots in the Bible, we shouldn't think of it like our lottery today where we perceive it as just totally random chance. Isn't that what we do? We say we hope, we wish that we, you know, win or whatever. Well, that's not what they had in view. They had in view that God was going to direct them through this means. In fact, there's a proverb that says, man is the one who casts his lots, but the decision is up to the Lord. You see, random chance is foreign to the Bible. There's no such thing as luck in the Bible or just something that's totally random. So they're casting the lots before the Lord. And, you know, this had to be a source of comfort for the people. Recognizing that God was sovereignly working to make this decision on their behalf, you know what that should have done? That should have eliminated all squabbling. Sovereignty should silence squabbling, shouldn't it? Because they're not looking around and saying, man, I wish... You know, I wish that I had that piece of land. Maybe they did later on. But in that moment, they had to recognize the Lord has decided that this piece of land is good for this people. And this division is good for this tribe. I like how Francis Schaeffer put it. Simply said, he he wrote, It was God who made the division. The men only supervised the distribution under the hand of God through the lot. You think we can learn something from that? As God orders our lives, as we look around and see what God's doing, nothing's random chance, nothing is mere luck, but as people are blessed in a particular way, you think we can recognize God's sovereignty there and appreciate God for what He's doing? Well, we're going to fly over the rest of this section through the end of 21. We're going way up in the hot air balloon to get a big view of of what's happening. We're not getting into the details. You can kind of run your eyes over the next few verses and chapters. There are territories that are here described, and I want us to look at just a couple things in there, and then I want to finish with a conversation about how we are to steward the blessings that God gives us, because that comes up in this section as well. Well, you see the other inheritance are all listed out here, Benjamin and Simeon and Asher, Naphtali, and so on. There are specifics in here that can be mapped out. I trust you don't want to do that. 
Uh, but there are some pre-made maps just for that very thing where you can look and see, oh, this is what's described there, and you can look at a map. Some of you who are perhaps more visual learners or more excited by maps than you are words of text on a page, you can look up maps like that. And one of my commentaries has a map for every tribe, which is just an amazing labor that he went through in making that commentary. But I do want to just make the note again that these are real people. This happened in real history. This was real space where this happened. These aren't made-up cities. This isn't made-up geography. It's geography that we can learn more about through history and archaeology. And God was doing a great work among the people, and this was uh, what happened in history. What you see as you go through these chapters as well is a beautiful emphasis, and we've been seeing it all through Joshua, but it kind of culminates here a beautiful emphasis on unity among the 12 tribes as they were moving into this land together and as they were conquering this land together. This was something that they were to do as one nation. Though they were 12 tribes, they were moving as one. And I would like to imagine it this way as I, as I think back. There's obviously no way to know exactly what it looked like, but I would love to just imagine some Israelites conquering land together. You've got you know, the tribe of Asher and the tribe of Zebulun going in on, on Nephtali's behalf and driving out enemies with them and then sitting back and just being so thankful to the Lord that your brother's family gets to live there. You, you were just fighting for a land that you're not going to dwell in. You're fighting for a land that God had given to another tribe, and yet you were doing it for the sake of God's love and the love of your brother, that his blessings would be realized. I love... Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, if you haven't caught wind of this yet, I really like his commentary and think you should check that out if you're interested in a commentary on Joshua. But I love what he said about this unity that God was building in Israel. He said, Christian believers can profit from this perspective. We always face the temptation of thinking that we are elite rather than elect, of thinking that, after all, our own particular Christian ghetto is swankier than the others, or of simply losing sight of the fact that other believers share the same Father's wealth. As they were doing this all together, they could rejoice together because this was God's doing. God was directing them all the way through. And there was a unity that I assume was there at least for a moment. We know it didn't last in Israel, that they eventually would divide themselves up again and pit themselves against each other. But surely for a time, there was some sweet unity there. At the end of chapter 19, I want to point out to you the last division of the land, the very last three verses of chapter 19. Joshua was the one to get his piece of land last. I think this is pretty interesting. Joshua was the last one, and we'll read this together, starting at verse 49. It says, When they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled it. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. So the land division ends right here with Joshua's portion. And I think there are a couple lessons here for us, especially uh, leadership lessons. One is that, did you notice it says in uh, verse 50, that Joshua had asked for a piece of land. It was really just a city. He didn't demand 
a city, but he asked for a city. Imagine this, this 80-plus-year-old man who has been out front leading God's people. He's been in battle with God's people. Surely he's got battle wounds. He's been sacrificing so much on behalf of the people. He asks for his piece of land, and he's the last one to get his city. That's some servant leadership, wouldn't you say? The last one. Now, you can contrast that with Caleb. Caleb, who was the only other one of Joshua's generation, they were the two faithful spies who got to enter the promised land. Caleb didn't ask. In fact, it says, and I quote, Caleb said, give me this piece of land. So Caleb went first and Caleb demanded. Joshua goes last and Joshua asks. I think that's quite interesting. Nevertheless, these two faithful men were bookends for the division of the land, and Joshua went on to build his city. And this is the only other mention of the tabernacle in the whole book. The first was in 18 verse 1, and the last one is right here in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 51. This is the last time we hear about the tabernacle, and it says that the, the lots were cast there before the Lord. Well, chapter 20, if you have a heading in your Bible, you might see that it says, cities of refuge, or more specifically, six cities of refuge. One of God's amazing provisions in Israel was that He gave them these safe places. Uh, in, in our day and age, we're used to the phrase safe spaces. Uh, if you've been on a university campus in recent history, you'll know that people need to have safety from, you know, mean people who exercise freedom of speech, and that really freaks them out, and so they got to go get in their safe space uh, and, you know, get under a blanket or whatever that means. Well, that's not what this was, okay? Uh, Israel wasn't getting a, a safe space, like, in that sense. They were getting cities of refuge, which, again, was a provision of God from the law. In Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, God described to them how they were to have these types of cities. And what these cities were for it was when somebody accidentally killed somebody else. Uh, not on purpose. This wasn't murder, but this was an accidental killing. So someone's out chopping wood and the axe head flies off and, you know, hits somebody, whatever the case may be, and he killed the person. Well, according to the law, that person's family has the right then to avenge the blood of the one who killed their family member. What this is is a recognition of the importance of life. It's a recognition that an image bearer just died, and so justice needs to be served. Yet, not every time someone died was it on purpose. There's a difference between being killed and being murdered. And so this doesn't have to do with murder, but it has to do with accidental deaths. There was still a seriousness that came with that, but the one who did the killing accidentally did not deserve to die. And so this was a great and gracious provision of God where the one who accidentally killed another was able to flee to a city of refuge and remain there until the high priest died. Now, I tend to agree with, again, Francis Schaeffer that these cities of refuge, they weren't exactly a, a type of Christ per se, but when you think about it, this is a really strong illustration of the Christian's experience in salvation, isn't it? There's a strong illustration here in our refuge and what the Lord has provided for us. Because if you're a Christian, you too have received a great and gracious provision from God. When you had your blood on the line, or worse yet, your soul on the line, and yet God provided you a way of escape, a city of refuge. 
In Hebrews 6.18, it states that Christians have taken refuge in Jesus Christ. It uses that word. We've taken refuge in Christ. Or you think of that hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you, He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And isn't that a beautiful picture of our salvation? We were running for safety, for cover, for refuge to King Jesus. And again, it was much worse than your blood being on the line. You were morally guilty before God and your soul was on the line. And if you were to get rightly what you deserve for what you have done wrong, what would you get? You would get eternal punishment from an eternal God. You would spend eternity in the lake of fire understanding that you have transgressed and sinned against the Holy One, the eternal Creator of all things, and you willfully rebelled. Yet we do have the offer of a refuge, don't we? We have the offer of a way of escape, not by what we can do to make up for what we've done wrong. You could never do that. But we have a way of escape in running to Jesus. He is our safe place. He's our place of refuge. Well, these cities of refuge were within the cities that were given to the Levites. You can see the heading, perhaps, of your Bible for chapter 21. The Levites got 48 cities. Over and over again, we see that the Levites weren't to get a a big plot of land. They weren't to get a, a region, but they were to get cities to dwell in. Their inheritance was the Lord. They were the priestly tribe, the ones that God used as priests, and their inheritance was Yahweh Himself. Their divisions were based on the three sons of Levi and the family lines. What's interesting as you consider Levi's three sons is they each had different functions in the tabernacle. They did different things as they served the Lord there as they were uh, assigned to do. There were 23 cities given to one son, 13 to another, and 12 to the third, making a total of 48. And if you want to read all about that, look at chapter 21. It's just right there for you to learn all kinds of fun names of cities that you never knew existed. Uh, You can learn all about them in chapter 21. So now, um, what are we to take away here? These are some interesting items that the Lord has presented us in His Word today. But again, it can feel like so far away, can't it? It can just feel so distant. There are some other passages that we read, and immediately there's application. Immediately the Lord's bringing things to mind. Immediately you feel like, oh, I know how I'm to respond to that. But passages like this, you might be thinking, is this over yet? So what is there to learn? What is there to take away? What is there to apply? Well, let's go back to chapter 18, back to the beginning of chapter 18, because again, I want to close out with the thought of stewarding blessings well, being good managers of the blessings of God. And as I was reading through, again, uh, Davis's commentary on this, I thought he made such an excellent point that we would do well to ponder for a while. Of course, we, we dwelt on verse 1 of chapter 18 for some time, talking about the tent of meeting in Shiloh and the nation being gathered together once again. But did you notice in verse 2 and in verse 3, it talks about these sons of Israel who had not divided their inheritance yet. And Joshua's response there in verse 3, he's basically saying, why are you dragging your feet? Why, why are you taking so long? He asked the question, how long will you put off 
doing this task. So in his interpretation, at least, these other tribes and the leaders of these tribes, they weren't getting to work with the blessing that God had given them. And I want us to consider this reality, how God's promises are to be acted upon, aren't they? God's blessings are to be stewarded. When God graciously grants us gifts, we are to exercise those gifts and to bring them to bear on the reality of our life. It should never remain theoretical. It should never remain philosophical. It should never remain on paper. But our God is a real God who grants us real blessings in real life, doesn't He? And, and there's an effect that God should have on our lives. As God's people, our duty is to move into His gifts. God gave them the land. He, he drove out their enemies before them, and they were there. And now they're being asked, how long are you just going to sit there? They were to finish the job that God had for them. They were to go make their divisions. They were to move into the blessings of God. The way Davis put this, as he speaks of the land, he says, It is Yahweh's gift, and yet that does not cancel human responsibility. Yahweh's promises are intended not as sedatives, but as stimulants. I love that, that phrase. That's a great phrase. God's gifts are not meant to tame, but to arouse God's people. Isn't that so true? As we consider the greatest gift that we've been given, which is salvation, that we are called to work out with fear and trembling as God works in us, think about how would God use you to act in faith in His redemptive program? You don't have this land that we're reading about in Joshua. It's not given to you. So you don't have that same task that they have. But don't you indeed recognize that God's given you gifts? God's given you the gift of salvation. God's given you the church. God's given you a spiritual gift. God's given you family and friends. He's given you all sorts of things in your life. And, and I think that should provoke us to consider how we are to serve Him well in stewarding these gifts for His glory. God has placed you in the church during this very particular time in history, a wonderful time in history. How would you use those gifts to serve Him, to honor Him, to act in faith for His glory? We live at a critical time, don't we? There's so much going on in the world. I mean, we, we live in a very, very strange time as Americans in the year 2022 and as Christians. And God can and will do so much through His church. God is using His church as ambassadors, as salt and as light, as those who go out with beautiful feet to proclaim the good news, as those who radically serve others in love, true love, sacrificial love, as Christ shines through us. And He's given us so much to work with. He hasn't left us empty-handed. He hasn't said, go out and find your own tools. He stocked us full of tools. He's given us His Word, the sword that we are to go out and to do battle with the forces of darkness, the invisible forces, and to proclaim Jesus as Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, God Himself, who today offers Himself as Savior to the world. But one day, God is going to, through Him, judge the world. And people can either meet Him today as Savior or meet Him later as judge. 
And He's given the church as a gift, as a light to the world to share His love. And in the body, He's given us the gift of one another, hasn't He? That we might build one another up in love, this house, this temple that God is building, that it might grow and grow and grow, that each joint may be fitted together, perfectly supplied with love, with wisdom, with humility and grace. And God's given you all kinds of tools for these tasks. Let's consider how we can serve Him well, not only to enjoy the blessings, but to go out and to press forward using the blessings He's given us. Let us not be taken to sleep with these blessings, that they would be sedatives in our lives, but let us be stimulated by God's good gifts, that we would go out, wash each other's feet, and proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. Sound like a plan? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for your good work in our lives. We rely totally, completely on what you have done, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. You've given us some amazing pictures of the end and what you're going to do with this earth, how you're going to redeem it, and you're going to bring nations together, and they're all going to submit to King Jesus. What an amazing, amazing thought. And by your grace, today we get to begin submitting to you and experiencing these kingdom blessings, experiencing this new covenant. God, you've given us great reason to sing and rejoice. We are safe in Jesus. He is our refuge. And we, we want to encourage one another and build one another up with that message and also take it to the world that others might join this family, this kingdom, this temple as living stones being positioned and fitted together through the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. God, help us to serve you well as we consider how we can use what you've given us and move forward and bless your holy name. God, help us to continue to grow, to be more like Jesus, and to reflect your love with one another and with the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.